Chapter 5 of The Red Cross Girls on the French Firing Line. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Red Cross Girls on the French Firing Line by Margaret Vandercook. Chapter 5 Other Fields. The work which the American girls were to do for the French Croix de Rouge, Red Cross, was to be accomplished under entirely different circumstances. They traveled southeast nearly an entire day, and toward evening were driven through a thickly wooded country to the edge of the forest of Le Prout. An American field hospital, an exact duplicate of those used in America, had recently been presented to the French government by three Americans who desired that their identity be kept a secret. The hospital was made up of twenty tents, six of them large enough to take care of two hundred wounded men, and these hospital tents could be put up in fifteen minutes and taken down in six by the American ambulance volunteers, many of them students from Columbia, Harvard, Williams, and other American universities. So it was thought fitting that the four American Red Cross girls, who had lately offered their services to France, should assist in the nursing at these new hospitals. They had been located in southern France near the lines and just beyond the reach of the enemy's guns. Therefore it was self-evident that different living arrangements would have to be made for the nurses, so Nona, Barbara, Mildred, and even Eugenia were unfeignedly glad when they learned that they were to live together in a tiny French farmhouse within short walking distance of the field hospital. There they were to do their own housekeeping with the assistance of an old man who would take charge of the outdoor work. The farmhouse had been offered for their use by the French countess who was the owner of an ancient chateau about a mile away. Indeed, the farmhouse lay within the boundaries of her lands. When the girls first tumbled out of the carriage, they were too tired to be more than halfway curious over their new abode. But half an hour later, they were investigating the entire place with delight. This was because they had already rested and eaten a supper that would have served for all the good little princesses in fairy stories. Naturally, the girls had expected to find their little house empty, but no sooner had they started up the cobblestone path to the blue front door when an old man appeared on the threshold, bowing with the grace of an eighteenth-century courtier. He was only Francois, the old French peasant who was to be of what service he could to them. There in the clean-scrubbed dining-room stood a round oak table set with odd pieces of china, white, and blue and gold, hundreds of years old and more valuable than any but a connoisseur could appreciate. Francois himself waited to serve supper. The countess, whose servant he had been for fifty years, had sent over the food. A pitcher of new milk, a square of golden honey, petit fromage, which is a delicious cream cheese that only the French can make, and a great bowl of wild strawberries which ripen in autumn in southern France. Besides this, there was a big loaf of snowy bread. 
Barbara straightway threw her bonnet and coat aside. Then, as she found the first place at the table, she exclaimed, So this is what one has to eat in France in wartime. A few moments later, Mildred took her place at what was hereafter to be known as the head of the table, with Eugenia just across and Barbara and Nona on either side. For so almost unconsciously, the little family of four girls arranged themselves. Although it was not until later that Mildred Thornton was to prove the real authority in domestic matters, while Eugenia continued to regard herself as intellectual head of the family, with Nona and Barbara as talented but at times tiresome children. However, after thanks and goodbyes were said to old Francois, the girls started on their tour of the little house. Evidently it had belonged to real farmer people who must have worked some of the land of the countess. Doubtless the men had gone to war and the women found employment elsewhere. The farmhouse was only one story and a half high, with the kitchen and dining room below, but above there were four small bedrooms with a single window each and sloping ceilings. But the charming thing was that the walls were of rough plaster painted in beautiful colors, one rose, one blue, one yellow, and the other lavender. So the girls chose each the color she most loved, Barbara the blue, Nona the pink, Mildred the lavender, and Eugenia, professing not to care, the yellow. It was just about dusk when they finally came outdoors again for a better view of the house itself. They had scarcely done more than glanced at it on entering. The farmhouse was built of wood, which had once been white, but was now a light gray, with the most wonderful turquoise blue door and shutters. Indeed, the girls were to find out later that the little place was known in the neighborhood roundabout as the house with the blue front door. But though the house was so delightful that the girls had almost forgotten the sadness of their errand to the country, the landscape was far less cheerful. A row of poplar trees, already half stripped of their leaves, formed a windbreak at one side of the house. Growing close on the farther side were a dozen pine trees, suggesting gloomy sentinels left to guard the deserted place. There were no other houses in sight. "'I wonder where the chateau is?' Barbara asked a trifle wistfully. "'I suppose if our services are not required at the hospital at once, we might go in the morning to call on the countess to thank her for her kindness.' Immediately Eugenia frowned upon the suggestion. She was a little depressed by the neighborhood, now that evening was coming on, and she still found it difficult to agree often with Barbara. "'Of course we shall do no such thing,' she answered curtly. "'Exchanging friendly visits with new and unknown neighbors may be a Western custom, but so far as I have been told it is assuredly not the custom in France.' "'Why, there are no such exclusive persons in the world as the old French nobility, of which this countess is a member. Can't you just imagine what she would think of the forwardness of American girls if we should intrude upon her in such a fashion? Oh, Barbara replied in a rather crestfallen voice as Nona put her arm across her shoulder. Then they started into the house together. 
a little later however she regained a part of her spirit which eugenia and the coming of night had crushed i wonder eugenia she inquired in the soft tones in which she was most dangerous how you have learned so much concerning the customs of the old french nobility was it because you were introduced to captain castaigne the other day i believe lieutenant hume said that he really belonged to the aristocracy but preferred not to use his title in republican france eugenia flushed and was about to answer curtly when mildred thornton interposed good-naturedly for goodness sake children don't quarrel on our first evening or you may bring us bad luck remember we have got to prove that girls can live and work together but i don't want to preach let's go to bed so we can get up early in the morning and unpack and get used to the things about the house i have no doubt some one from the field hospital will come over to tell us what they wish us to do i am afraid i don't know much about housekeeping or cooking except for the sick but i am certainly going to try and learn so the girls went in and each one lighted a candle and retired to her own room when she was nearly asleep however barbara was startled by a head being thrust inside her door then by her flickering light she discovered eugenia's face looking uncommonly handsome with two long braids of dark hair framing her clear-cut features sorry i was so cross barbara she whispered you know child sometimes i feel that i must have been born an old maid End of chapter five